Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 3 of The Return of Tarzan. What Happened in the Rumal On his arrival in Paris, Tarzan had gone directly to the apartments of his old friend Darnot, where the naval lieutenant had scored him roundly for his decision to renounce the title and estates that were rightly his from his father, John Clayton, the late Lord Greystoke. "'You must be mad, my friend,' said Darnot. "'thus lightly to give up not alone wealth and position, "'but an opportunity to prove beyond doubt to all the world "'that in your veins flows the noble blood "'of two of England's most honored houses, "'instead of the blood of a savage she-ape. "'It is incredible that they could have believed you, "'Miss Porter least of all. "'Why, I never did believe it, "'even back in the wilds of your African jungle, "'when you tore the raw meat of your kills with mighty jaws "'like some wild beast, "'and wiped your greasy hands upon your thighs.' Even then, before there was the slightest proof to the contrary, I knew that you were mistaken in the belief that Kala was your mother. And now, with your father's diary of the terrible life led by him and your mother on that wild African shore, with the account of your birth, and final, and most convincing proof of all, your own baby fingerprints upon the pages of it, it seems incredible to me that you are willing to remain a nameless, penniless vagabond. I do not need any better name than Tarzan, replied the ape-man. "'and as for remaining a penniless vagabond, "'I have no intention of so doing. "'In fact, the next, and let us hope the last, "'burden that I shall be forced to put upon your unselfish friendship "'will be the finding of employment for me.' "'Oh, pooh!' scoffed Darnot. "'You know that I did not mean that. "'Have I not told you a dozen times that I have enough for twenty men, "'and that half of what I have is yours? "'And if I gave it all to you,' Would it represent even the tenth part of the value I place upon your friendship, my Tarzan? Would it repay the services you did me in Africa? I do not forget, my friend, that but for you and your wondrous bravery I would have died at the stake in the village of Mumbanga's cannibals. Nor do I forget that to your self-sacrificing devotion I owe the fact that I recovered from the terrible wounds I received at their hands. I discovered later something of what it meant to you to remain with me in the amphitheater of apes, "'while your heart was urging you on to the coast. "'When we finally came there "'and found that Miss Porter and her party had left, "'I commenced to realize something "'of what you had done for an utter stranger. "'Nor am I trying to repay you with money, Tarzan. "'It is that just at present you need money. "'Were it sacrifice that I might offer you, "'it were the same. "'My friendship must always be yours, "'because our tastes are similar, "'and I admire you. "'That I cannot command, "'but the money I can.' and shall. Well, laughed Tarzan, we shall not quarrel over the money. I must live, and so I must have it, but I shall be more contented with something to do. You cannot show me your friendship in a more convincing manner than to find employment for me. I shall die of inactivity in a short while. As for my birthright, it is in good hands. Clayton is not guilty of robbing me of it. He truly believes that he is the real Lord Greystoke, and the chances are that he will make a better English lord than a man who was born and raised in an African jungle. You know that I am but half-civilized even now. Let me see red in anger but for a moment, and all the instincts of the savage beast that I really am submerge what little I possess of the milder ways of culture and refinement. And then again, had I declared myself, I should have robbed the woman I love of the wealth and position that her marriage to Clayton will now ensure to her. I could not have done that. Could I, Paul? "'Nor is the matter of great importance to me,' he went on, without waiting for a reply. "'Raised as I have been, 
I see no worth in a man or beast that is not theirs by virtue of their own mental or physical prowess. And so I am as happy to think of Kala as my mother as I would be to try to picture the poor, unhappy little English girl who passed away a year after she bore me. Kala was always kind to me in her fierce and savage way. I must have nursed at her hairy breast from the time that my own mother died. She fought for me against the wild denizens of the forest and against the savage members of our tribe with the ferocity of real mother love. And I, on my part, loved her, Paul. I did not realize just how much until after the cruel spear and the poisoned arrow of Mumbanga's black warrior had stolen her away from me. I was still a child when that occurred, and I threw myself upon her dead body and wept out my anguish as a child might for his own mother. To you, my friend, she would have appeared a hideous and ugly creature, but to me she was beautiful, so gloriously does love transfigure its object. And so I'm perfectly content to remain forever the son of Kala, the she-ape. I do not admire you the less for your loyalty, said Darnot, but the time will come when you will be glad to claim your own. Remember what I say, and let us hope that it will be as easy then as it is now. You must bear in mind that Professor Porter and Mr. Fillander are the only people in the world who can swear that the little skeleton found in the cabin with those of your father and mother was that of an infant anthropoid ape, and not of the offspring of Lord and Lady Greystoke. That evidence is most important. They are both old men. They may not live many years longer. And then, did it not occur to you that once Miss Porter knew the truth, she would break her engagement with Clayton? You might easily have your title, your estate, and the woman you love, Tarzan. Had you not thought of that? Tarzan shook his head. You do not know her, he said. Nothing could bind her closer to her bargain than some misfortune to Clayton. She is from an old Southern family in America, and Southerners pride themselves upon their loyalty. Tarzan spent the two following weeks renewing his former brief acquaintance with Paris. In the daytime he haunted the libraries and picture galleries. He had become an omnivorous reader, and the world of possibilities that were open to him in this seat of culture and learning fairly appalled him when he contemplated the very infinitesimal crumb of the sum total of human knowledge that a single individual might hope to acquire even after a lifetime of study and research. But he learned what he could by day, and threw himself into a search for relaxation and amusement at night. Nor did he find Paris a whit less fertile field for his nocturnal avocation. If he smoked too many cigarettes and drank too much absinthe, it was because he took civilization as he found it, and did the things that he found his civilized brothers doing. The life was a new and alluring one, and in addition he had a sorrow in his breast and a great longing which he knew could never be fulfilled, and so he sought in study and in dissipation, the two extremes, to forget the past and inhibit contemplation of the future. He was sitting in a music hall one evening, sipping his absinthe and admiring the art of a certain famous Russian dancer, when he caught a passing glimpse of a pair of evil black eyes upon him. The man turned and was lost in the crowd at the exit before Tarzan could catch a good look at him, but he was confident that he had seen those eyes before, and that they had been fastened on him this evening through no passing accident. He had had the uncanny feeling for some time that he was being watched, and it was in response to this animal instinct that was strong within him that he had turned suddenly and surprised the eyes in the very act of watching him. Before he left the music hall the matter had been forgotten, nor did he notice the swarthy individual who stepped deeper into the shadows of an opposite doorway 
as Tarzan emerged from the brilliantly lighted amusement hall. Had Tarzan but known it, he had been followed many times from this and other blazes of amusement, but seldom if ever had he been alone. Tonight Darnot had had another engagement, and Tarzan had come by himself. As he turned in the direction he was accustomed to taking from this part of Paris to his apartment, the watcher across the street ran from his hiding place and hurried on ahead at a rapid pace. Tarzan had been wont to traverse the room all on his way home at night. Because it was very quiet and very dark, it reminded him more of his beloved African jungle than did the noisy and garish streets surrounding it. If you are familiar with your Paris, you will recall the narrow, forbidding precincts of the Rue Mall. If you are not, you need but ask the police about it to learn that in all Paris there is no street to which you should give a wider berth after dark. On this night, Tarzan had proceeded some two squares to the dense shadows of the squalid old tenements which lined this dismal way, when he was attracted by screams and cries for help from the third floor of an opposite building. The voice was a woman's. Before the echoes of her first cries had died, Tarzan was bounding up the stairs and through the dark corridors to her rescue. At the end of the corridor on the third landing, a door stood slightly ajar, and from within Tarzan heard again the same appeal that had lured him from the street. Another instant found him in the center of a dimly lighted room. An oil lamp burned upon a high, old-fashioned mantel, casting its dim rays over a dozen repulsive figures. All but one were men. The other was a woman of about thirty. Her face, marked by low passions and dissipation, might once have been lovely. She stood with one hand at her throat, crouching against the farther wall. "'Help, monsieur!' she cried in a low voice as Tarzan entered the room. "'They were killing me!' As Tarzan turned toward the men about him, he saw the crafty, evil faces of habitual criminals. He wondered that they had made no effort to escape. A movement behind him caused him to turn. Two things his eyes saw, and one of them caused him considerable wonderment. A man was sneaking stealthily from the room, and in the brief glance that Tarzan had of him, he saw that it was Rokoff. But the other thing he saw was of more immediate interest. It was a great brute of a fellow tiptoeing upon him from behind with a large bludgeon in his hand. And then, as the man and his confederates saw that he was discovered, there was a concerted rush upon Tarzan from all sides. Some of the men drew knives. Others picked up chairs, while the fellow with the bludgeon raised it high above his head in a mighty swing that would have crushed Tarzan's head had it ever descended upon it. But the brain and the agility and the muscles that had coped with the mighty strength and cruel craftiness of Turkaz and Numa in the fastness of their savage jungle were not to be so easily subdued as these Apaches of Paris had believed. Selecting his most formidable antagonist, the fellow with the bludgeon, Tarzan charged full upon him, dodging the falling weapon and catching the man a terrific blow on the point of the chin that felled him in his tracks. Then he turned upon the others. This was sport. He was reveling in the joy of battle and the lust of blood, as though it had been but a brittle shell to break at least rough usage. The thin veneer of his civilization fell away from him, and the ten burly villains found themselves penned in a small room with a wild and savage beast against whose steel muscles their puny strength was less than futile. At the end of the corridor without stood Rokoff, waiting the outcome of the affair. He wished to be sure that Tarzan was dead before he left, but it was not a part of his plan to be one of those within the room when the murder occurred. The woman still stood where she had been when Tarzan entered, but her face had undergone a number of changes within the few minutes which had elapsed. From the semblance of distress which it had worn when Tarzan first saw it, it had changed to one of craftiness 
as he had wheeled to meet the attack from behind, but the change Tarzan had not seen. Later an expression of surprise and then one of horror superseded the others, and who may wonder, for the immaculate gentleman her cries had lured to what was to have been his death had been suddenly changed into a demon of revenge. Instead of soft muscles and a weak resistance, she was looking upon a veritable Hercules gone mad. "'Mon Dieu!' she cried. "'He is a beast!' for the strong white teeth of the ape-man had found the throat of one of his assailants, and Tarzan fought as he had learned to fight with the great bull apes of the tribe of Kerchak. He was in a dozen places at once, leaping hither and thither about the room in sinuous bounds that reminded the woman of a panther she had seen at the zoo. Now a wrist-bone snapped in his iron grip. Now a shoulder was wrenched from his socket as he forced the victim's arm backward and upward. With shrieks of pain the men escaped into the hallway as quickly as they could, but even before the first one staggered, bleeding and broken from the room, Rokoff had seen enough to convince him that Tarzan would not be the one to be lying dead in that house, and so the Russian had hastened to a nearby den and telephoned the police that a man was committing murder on the third floor of the room all 27. When the officers arrived, they found three men groaning on the floor, a frightened woman lying upon a filthy bed, her face buried in her arms, and what appeared to be a well-dressed young gentleman standing in the center of the room awaiting the reinforcements which he had thought the footsteps of the officers hurrying up the stairway had announced. But they were mistaken in the last. It was a wild beast that looked upon them through those narrowed lids and steel-gray eyes. With the smell of blood, the last vestige of civilization had deserted Tarzan, and now he stood at bay, like a lion surrounded by hunters, awaiting the next overt act and crouching to charge its author. "'What has happened here?' "'asked one of the policemen. "'Tarzan explained briefly, "'but when he turned to the woman for confirmation "'of his statement, he was appalled by her reply. "'He lies!' she screamed shrilly, "'addressing the policeman. "'He came to my room while I was alone, "'and for no good purpose. "'When I repulsed him, he would have killed me "'had not my screams attracted these gentlemen "'who were passing the house at the time. "'He is a devil, messieurs. "'Alone he has all but killed ten men "'with his bare hands and his teeth.' So shocked was Tarzan by her ingratitude that for a moment he was struck dumb. The police were inclined to be a little skeptical, for they had other dealings with this same lady and her lovely coterie of gentlemen friends. However, they were policemen, not judges, so they decided to place all the inmates of the room under arrest and let another, whose business it was, separate the innocent from the guilty. But they found that it was one thing to tell this well-dressed young man that he was under arrest, but quite another to enforce it. I am guilty of no offense, Tarzan said quietly. I have but sought to defend myself. I do not know why the woman has told you what she has. She can have no enmity against me, for never until I came into this room in response to her cries for help had I seen her. Come, come, said one of the officers. There are judges to listen to all that. And he advanced to lay his hand upon Tarzan's shoulder. An instant later he lay crumpled in a corner of the room. And then, as his comrades rushed in upon the ape-man, they experienced a taste of what the Apaches had but recently gone through. So quickly and so roughly did he handle them that they had not even an opportunity to draw their revolvers. During the brief fight Tarzan had noted the open window, and beyond, the stem of a tree, or a telegraph pole, he couldn't tell which. As the last officer went down, one of his fellows succeeded in drawing his revolver, and from where he lay on the floor, fired at Tarzan. The shot missed, and before the man could fire again, Tarzan had swept the lamp from the mantel and plunged the room into darkness. The next they saw was a lithe form spring to the sill of the open window and leap, panther-like, 
onto the pole across the walk. When the police gathered themselves together and reached the street, their prisoner was nowhere to be seen. They did not handle the woman and the men who had not escaped any too gently when they took them to the station. They were a very sore and humiliated detail of police. It galled them to think that it would be necessary to report that a single unarmed man had wiped the floor with the whole lot of them, and then escaped them as easily as though they had not existed. The officer who had remained in the street swore that no one had leaped from the window or left the building from the time they entered until they had come out. His comrades thought that he had lied, but they could not prove it. When Tarzan found himself clinging to the pole outside the window, he followed his jungle instinct and looked below for enemies before he ventured down. It was well he did, for just beneath stood a policeman. Above, Tarzan saw no one, so he went up instead of down. The top of the pole was opposite the roof of the building, and so it was but the work of an instant for the muscles that had for years sent him hurtling to the treetops of his primeval forest to carry him across the little space between the pole and the roof. From one building he went to another, and so on, with much climbing, until at a cross street he discovered another pole, down which he ran to the ground. For a square or two he ran swiftly, then he turned into a little all-night café, and in the lavatory removed the evidences of his over-roof promenade from hands and clothes. When he emerged a few moments later, he was to saunter slowly on toward his apartments. Not far from them he came to a well-lighted boulevard which it was necessary to cross. As he stood directly beneath the brilliant arc light, waiting for a limousine that was approaching to pass him, he heard his name called in a sweet feminine voice. Looking up, he met the smiling eyes of Olga de Cowd as she leaned forward upon the back seat of the machine. He bowed very low in response to her friendly greeting. When he straightened up, the machine had borne her away. Rokoff and the Countess de Cowd, both in the same evening, he soliloquized. Paris is not so large, after all. We'll return to Chapter 4 right after this sponsor message. And now, Chapter 4, The Countess Explains. Your Paris is more dangerous than my savage jungles, Paul, concluded Tarzan, after narrating his adventures to his friend the morning following his encounter with the Apaches and police in the room all. Why did they lure me there? Were they hungry? Darnot feigned a horrified shudder, but he laughed at the quaint suggestion. It is difficult to rise above the jungle standards and reason by the light of civilized ways, is it not, my friend? He queried banteringly. Civilized ways forsooth, scoffed Tarzan. Jungle standards do not countenance wanton atrocities. There we kill for food and for self-preservation, or in the winning of mates and the protection of the young. Always, you see, in accordance with the dictates of some great natural law. But here... Your civilized man is more brutal than the brutes. He kills wantonly, and worse than that, he utilizes a noble sentiment, the brotherhood of man, as a lure to entice his unwary victim to his doom. It was in answer to an appeal from a fellow being that I hastened to that room where the assassin lay in wait for me. I did not realize, I could not realize for a long time afterward, that any woman could sink to such moral depravity as that one must have to call a would-be rescuer to his death. "'but it must have been so. "'The sight of Rokoff there "'and the woman's later repudiation of me to the police "'make it impossible to place any other construction upon her acts. "'Rokoff must have known that I frequently passed through the room all. "'He lay in wait for me. "'His entire scheme worked out to the last detail, "'even to the woman's story, "'in case a hitch should occur in the program "'such as really did happen. "'It's all perfectly plain to me. 
"'Well,' said Darno, "'among other things, "'it has taught you what I've been unable to impress upon you, "'that the room all is a good place to avoid after dark.' "'On the contrary,' replied Tarzan, with a smile, "'it has convinced me that it is the one worthwhile street in all Paris. "'Never again shall I miss an opportunity to traverse it, "'for it has given me the first real entertainment I've had since I left Africa.' "'It may give you more than you will relish even without another visit,' said Darnot. "'You are not through with the police yet, remember. "'I know the Paris police well enough to assure you that they will not soon forget what you did to them. "'Sooner or later they will get you, my dear Tarzan, "'and then they will lock the wild man of the woods up behind iron bars. "'How would you like that?' "'They will never lock Tarzan of the apes behind iron bars,' replied Tarzan grimly. There was something in the man's voice as he said it that caused Darnot to look up sharply at his friend. What he saw in the set jaw and the cold gray eyes made the young Frenchman very apprehensive for this great child who could recognize no law mightier than his own mighty physical prowess. He saw that something must be done to set Tarzan right with the police before another encounter was possible. "'You have much to learn, Tarzan,' Darnot said gravely. "'The law of man must be respected, whether you relish it or not. Nothing but trouble can come to you and your friends should you persist in defying the police. I can explain it to them once for you, and that I shall do this very day. But hereafter you must obey the law. If its representatives say, Come, you must come. If they say, Go, you must go. Now we shall go to my great friend in the department and fix up this matter of the room all. Come with me. Together they entered the office of the police official a half hour later. He was very cordial. He remembered Tarzan from the visit the two had made him several months prior in the matter of fingerprints. When Darnot had concluded the narration of the events which had transpired the previous evening, a grim smile was playing about the lips of the policeman. He touched a button near his hand, and as he waited for the clerk to respond to its summons, he searched through the papers on his desk for one which he finally located. "'Here, Juban," he said, as the clerk entered. "'Summon these officers.' "'Have them come to me at once.' "'And he handed the man the paper he had sought. "'Then he turned to Tarzan. "'You have committed a very grave offense, monsieur,' he said. "'Not unkindly. "'And but for the explanation made by our good friend here, "'I should be inclined to judge you harshly. "'I am, instead, about to do a rather unheard-of thing. "'I have summoned the officers whom you maltreated last night. "'They shall hear Lieutenant Darnot's story.' and then I shall leave it to their discretion to say whether you shall be prosecuted or not. You have very much to learn about the ways of civilization. Things that seem strange or unnecessary to you, you must learn to accept until you are able to judge the motives behind them. The officers whom you attacked were but doing their duty. They had no discretion in the matter. Every day they risked their lives in the protection of the lives or property of others. They would do the same for you. They are very brave men and they are deeply mortified that a single unarmed man bested and beat them. Make it easy for them to overlook what you did. Unless I am gravely in error, you are yourself a very brave man, and brave men are proverbially magnanimous. Further conversation was interrupted by the appearance of the four policemen. As their eyes fell upon Tarzan, surprise was writ large on each countenance. My children, said the official, here is the gentleman whom you met in the room all last evening. He has come voluntarily to give himself up. I wish you to listen attentively to Lieutenant Darnot, who will tell you a part of the story of Monsieur's life. 
"'It may explain his attitude toward you of last night. "'Proceed, my dear lieutenant.' "'Darnot spoke to the policeman for half an hour. "'He told them something of Tarzan's wild jungle life. "'He explained the savage training that had taught him to battle like a wild beast in self-preservation. "'It became plain to them that the man had been guided by instinct rather than reason in his attack upon them. "'He had not understood their intentions.' To him they had been little different from any of the various forms of life he had been accustomed to in his native jungle, where practically all were his enemies. "'Your pride has been wounded,' said Darnot, in conclusion. "'It is the fact that this man overcame you that hurts the most. But you need feel no shame. You would not make apologies for defeat had you been penned in that small room with an African lion, or with the great gorilla of the jungles. And yet you were battling with muscles that have time and time again been pitted, and always victoriously.' "'against those terrors of the dark continent. "'It is no disgrace to fall beneath the superhuman strength "'of Tarzan of the Apes.' "'And then, as the men stood looking first at Tarzan "'and then at the superior, "'the ape-man did the one thing which was needed "'to erase the last remnant of animosity "'which they might have felt for him. "'With an outstretched hand he advanced toward them. "'I am sorry for the mistake I made,' he said simply. "'Let us be friends.' and that was the end of the whole matter, except that Tarzan became the subject of much conversation in the barracks of the police, and increased the number of his friends by four brave men at least. On their return to Darnot's apartments, the lieutenant found a letter awaiting him from an English friend, William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke. The two had maintained a correspondence since the birth of their friendship on that ill-fated expedition in search of Jane Porter after her theft by Turkaz the bull ape. They are to be married in London in about two months, said Darnot, as he completed his perusal of the letter. Tarzan did not need to be told who was meant by they. He made no reply, but he was very quiet and thoughtful during the balance of the day. That evening they attended the opera. Tarzan's mind was still occupied by his gloomy thoughts. He paid little or no attention to what was transpiring upon the stage. Instead he saw only the lovely vision of a beautiful American girl and heard naught but a sad, sweet voice acknowledging that his love was returned. And she was to marry another. He shook himself to be rid of his unwelcome thoughts, and at the same instant he felt eyes upon him. With the instinct that was his by virtue of training, he looked up squarely into the eyes that were looking at him, to find they were shining from the smiling face of Olga, Countess de Caud. As Tarzan returned her bow, he was positive that there was an invitation in her look, almost a plea. The next intermission found him beside her in her box. "'I have so much wished to see you,' she was saying. "'It has troubled me not a little to think that after the service you rendered to both my husband and myself, no adequate explanation was ever made you of what must have seemed ingratitude on our part in not taking the necessary steps to prevent a repetition of the attacks upon us by those two men.' "'You wrong me,' replied Tarzan. "'My thoughts of you have been only the most pleasant.' "'You must not feel that any explanation is due me. "'Have they annoyed you farther?' "'They never cease,' she replied sadly. "'I feel that I must tell someone, "'and I do not know another who so deserves an explanation as you. "'You must permit me to do so. "'It may be of service to you, "'for I know Nicholas Rokoff quite well enough "'to be positive that you have not seen the last of him. "'He will find some means to be revenged upon you.' What I wish to tell you may be of aid to you in combating any scheme of revenge he may harbor. I cannot tell you here, but tomorrow I shall be at home to receive Monsieur Tarzan at five. 
"'It will be an eternity until tomorrow at five, he said, as he bade her good night. From a corner of the theater, Rokoff and Polvich saw Monsieur Tarzan in the box of the Countess de Caud, and both men smiled. At four-thirty the following afternoon, a swarthy, bearded man rang the bell at the servant's entrance of the palace of the Count de Caud. The footman who opened the door raised his eyebrows in recognition as he saw who stood without. A low conversation passed between the two. At first the footman demurred from some proposition that the bearded one made. But an instant later something passed from the hand of the caller to the hand of the servant. Then the latter turned and led the visitor by a roundabout way to a little curtained alcove off the apartment in which the countess was wont to serve tea of an afternoon. A half hour later Tarzan was ushered into the room, and presently his hostess entered, smiling, and with outstretched hands. "'I am so glad that you came,' she said. "'Nothing could have prevented me,' he replied. For a few moments they spoke of the opera, of the topics that were then occupying the attention of Paris, of the pleasure that renewing their brief acquaintance which had had its inception under such odd circumstances, and this brought them to the subject that was uppermost in the minds of both. "'You must have wondered,' said the Countess, finally, "'what the object of Rokoff's persecution could be. "'It is very simple. "'The Count is entrusted with many of the vital secrets of the Ministry of War. "'He often has in his possession papers that foreign powers would give a fortune to possess. "'Secrets of state,' that their agents would commit murder, and worse than murder, to learn. There is such a matter now in his possession that would make the fortune of any Russian who could divulge it to his government. Rokoff and Polvich are Russian spies. They will stop at nothing to procure this information. The affair on the liner, I mean the matter of the card game, was for the purpose of blackmailing the knowledge they seek from my husband. Had he been convicted of cheating at cards, his career would have been blighted. He would have had to leave the War Department. He would have been socially ostracized. They intended to hold this club over him, the price of an avowal on their part that the Count was but the victim of the plot of enemies who wished to besmirch his name was to have been the papers they seek. You, Tarzan, thwarted them in this. Then they concocted the scheme whereby my reputation was to be the price instead of the Count's. When Povich entered my cabin, he explained it to me. If I would obtain the information for them, he promised to go no further, otherwise Rokoff, who stood without, was to notify the purser that I was entertaining a man other than my husband behind the locked doors of my cabin. He was to tell everyone he met on the boat, and when we landed he was to have given the whole story to the newspaper. Was that not too horrible? But I happened to know something of Monsieur Polvich that would send him to the gallows in Russia if it were known by the police of St. Petersburg. I dared him to carry out his plan, and then I leaned toward him and whispered a name in his ear. Like that! And she snapped her fingers. He flew at my throat as a madman. He would have killed me had you not interfered. The brutes! muttered Tarzan. Oh, they are worse than that, my friend, she said. They are devils. I fear for you because you have gained their hatred. I wish you to be on your guard constantly. Tell me that you will, for my sake for I should never forgive myself should you suffer through the kindness you did me. I do not fear them, he replied. I have survived grimmer enemies than Rokoff and Polvich. He saw that she knew nothing of the occurrence in the room all, nor did he mention it, fearing that it might distress her. For your own safety, he continued, why do you not turn the scoundrels over to the authorities? They should make quick work of them. 
She hesitated a moment before, before replying. There are two reasons, she said finally. One of them is that keeps the Count from doing that very thing. The other, my real reason for fearing to expose them, I've never told. Only Rokoff and I know it. I wonder... And then she paused, looking intently at him for a long time. And what do you wonder? He asked, smiling. I was wondering why it is that I want to tell you the thing that I've not dared to tell even my husband. I believe that you would understand, and that you could tell me the right course to follow. I believe that you would not judge me too harshly. I fear that I should prove a very poor judge, madam, Tarzan replied. For if you had been guilty of murder, I should say that the victim should be grateful to have met so sweet a fate. Oh, dear, no, she expostulated. It's not so terrible as that. But first let me tell you the reason the Count has for not prosecuting these men, if I can hold my courage. I shall tell you the real reason that I dare not. The first is that Nicholas Rokoff is my brother. We are Russians. Nicholas has been a bad man since I can remember. He was cashiered from the Russian army, in which he held a captaincy. There was a scandal for a time, but after a while it was partially forgotten, and my father obtained a position for him in the secret service. There have been many terrible crimes laid at Nicholas's door, but he's always managed to escape punishment. Of late he has accomplished it by trumped-up evidence convicting his victims of treason against the Tsar, and the Russian police, who were always only too ready to fasten guilt of this nature upon any and all, have accepted his version and exonerated him. Have not his attempted crimes against you and your husband forfeited whatever rights the bonds of kinship might have accorded him? asked Tarzan. The fact that you are his sister hasn't deterred him from seeking to besmirch your honor. You owe him no loyalty, madame. Ah, but there is that other reason. If I owe him no loyalty, though he be my brother, I cannot so easily disavow the fear I hold in him because of a certain episode in my life of which he is cognizant. I might as well tell you all, she resumed after a pause, for I see that it is in my heart to tell you sooner or later. I was educated in a convent. While there I met a man whom I supposed to be a gentleman. I knew little or nothing about men and less about love. I got it into my foolish head that I loved this man, and at his urgent request I ran away with him. We were to have been married. I was with him just three hours, all in the daytime and in public places, railroad stations, and upon a train. When I reached our destination where we were to have been married, two officers stepped up to my escort as we descended from the train and placed him under arrest. They took me also, but when I had told my story they did not detain me, other than to send me back to the convent under care of a matron. It seemed that the man who had wooed me was no gentleman at all, but a deserter from the army as well as a fugitive from civil justice. He had a police record in nearly every country in Europe. The matter was hushed up by the authorities of the convent. Not even my parents knew of it. But Nicholas met the man afterward and learned the whole story. Now he threatens to tell the Count if I do not do just as he wishes me to. Tarzan laughed. You are still but a little girl. The story that you have told me cannot reflect in any way upon your reputation. "'and were you not a little girl at heart, you would know it. "'Go to your husband tonight and tell him the whole story, "'just as you have told it to me. "'Unless I am much mistaken, he will laugh at you for your fears "'and take immediate steps to put that precious brother of yours in prison where he belongs.' 
I only wish that I dared, she said. But I'm afraid. I learned early to fear men. First my father, then Nicholas, then the fathers in the convent. Nearly all my friends fear their husbands. Why should I not fear mine? It does not seem right that women should fear men, said Tarzan, an expression of puzzlement on his face. I am better acquainted with the jungle folk, and there it is more often the other way around. No, I cannot understand why civilized women should fear men, the beings that are created to protect them. I should hate to think that any woman feared me. I do not think that any woman would fear you, my friend, said Olga de Cowd softly. I have known you but a short while, yet though it may seem foolish to say it, you are the only man I've ever known whom I think that I should never fear. It is strange, too, for you are very strong. I wondered at the ease with which you handled Nicholas and Polvich that night in my cabin. It was marvelous. As Tarzan was leaving her a short time later, he wondered a little at the clean pressure of her hand at parting, and the firm insistence with which she exacted a promise from him that he would call again on the morrow. The memory of her half-veiled eyes and perfect lips as she had stood smiling up to his face as he bade her good-bye remained with him for the balance of the day. Olga de Cowd was a very beautiful woman, and Tarzan of the Apes a very lonely young man, with a heart in him that was in need of doctoring that only a woman could provide. As the Countess turned back into the room after Tarzan's departure, she found herself face to face with Nicholas Rokoff. "'How long have you been here?' she cried, shrinking away from him. "'Since before your lover came,' he answered, with a nasty leer. "'Stop!' she commanded. How dare you say such a thing to me? Your sister! Well, my dear Olga, if he's not your lover, accept my apologies, but it is no fault of yours that he is not. Had he one-tenth the knowledge of women that I have, you would be in his arms this minute. He is a stupid fool, Olga. Why, your every word and act was an open invitation to him, and he had not the sense to see it. The woman put her hands to her ears. I will not listen! You are wicked to say such things as that. No matter what you may threaten me with, you know that I am a good woman. After tonight you will not dare to annoy me, for I shall tell Raoul all. He will understand, and then, Monsieur Nicholas, beware. You shall tell him nothing, said Rokoff. I have this affair now, and with the help of one of your servants, whom I may trust, it will lack nothing in the telling when the time comes that the details of the sworn evidence shall be poured in, into your husband's ears. The other affair served its purpose well. We now have something tangible to work on, Olga. A real affair. And you, a trusted wife. Shame, shame, Olga. And the brute laughed. So the countess told her count nothing, and matters were worse than they had been. From a vague fear, her mind was transferred to a very tangible one. It may be, too, that conscience helped to enlarge it all out of proportion. Join us next week Sunday night for Chapter 5, The Plot That Veiled, in The Return of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.